Now, as you know, the country is currently gridlocked over Brexit. And the question we are facing as a country is actually fairly simple. What sort of Britain do we want? Or to put it differently, what do we as a country want to be known for? And as you know, on one side there are the Remainers, or Remainers, some call them. The Remainers want Britain to be known as actually a European country. They want to say, look, we are actually in Europe, and we want to retain that identity, yes, as British, but also as European. And at present, they seem to have regained something of a momentum. Uh, the momentum seems to be swinging in their direction as we see the politics of the country play, playing out. That's on the one corner. The other corner, we have the Brexiteers. They want an independent and internationalist Britain. One that is able to define its future with the world in general without the, what they call the European encumbrances. Now, of course, for some of you, this is all kind of what I'm, I don't, I'm not really bothered about that. But it's a very interesting point, isn't it? As you think about these two sides, you realize that whatever side you're on, all of them agree that we need to be clear about what Britain should be known for. They all agree about that. They only differ on what that is, right? And as I thought about that situation, it reminded me that what is true for the UK is also true for all followers of Jesus. It is important to ask ourselves, when people look at me, what am I known for? When people look at this church, what are we known for? We need to ask that question, a very important question. In fact, every church has to ask that question. But you see, unlike the UK, if you are a true follower of Jesus this evening, it is not for you to say what you should be known for. What matters is what Jesus, the King, wants you to be known for. And what Jesus wants you to be known for is actually set up in this passage in front of us, in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to verse 20. This morning we saw Jesus arrive in Galilee. That was verse 14 to verse 15. He's arrived. He's beginning the mission. We are in the heart of Mark now. Jesus is on the scene. And we learned this evening that Jesus arriving now has set out his mission statement. And the mission statement of Jesus is that he has come for people who do not want him. But most importantly, he has come as God coming to reign as our king. That is his mission. That is his goal. And now we see here Jesus, the king, is now in the verses that follow, calling us to follow him. And as we look at these passages, there's just one question Jesus is asking. Are you answering the call? Are you answering the call to follow him? In other words, what are you known for? Are you known for what Jesus wants you to be known for? Are you known for, for yourself? Have you answered the call to follow Jesus? Are you answering a call as a Christian now to keep following Jesus? And to help you answer that question, it's not for you to give the answer. It's what, it's, you need to look at the Word of God and see how the Word of God would want you to think about that question. And to help you answer the question, I have three truths I want to share from this passage. The first truth in your outline is that Jesus is calling us to follow him. 
Jesus is calling all of us to follow him. Jesus, let's look at verse 16 there. We see that Jesus is in the province of Galilee. Now, as we go through Mark, we need to get acquainted with Galilee. Okay? Galilee is the most densely populated area at this time in this part of the world. 15,000 people live in Galilee at this time within 50 mile long, 25 mile wide area. It's a small area and 15,000 people live there. And the key landmark in Galilee is the Sea of Galilee or you find another version called the Lake of Galilee. It is on the eastern edge of the province of Galilee. Herod Antipas is the ruler, the tetrarch of Galilee. And he presides over this area of Galilee, which has this wonderful lake, right? The lake of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee. It is a fresh lake, and the lake is bounded by hills around it. And it has wonderful towns thriving around it, which we are used to in the scriptures to read about. So as we go through Mark, we'll become familiar with some of the towns which are around there. For example, the town of Capernaum is around that Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida, Magdala, where Mary comes from, and of course Gadara, and there are others like Tiberias. But these are some of the towns around this wonderful, thriving Sea of Galilee within the province of Galilee. Shorazen is another town. Now Mark tells us that Jesus has arrived in the province of Galilee. We saw that this morning. But now he tells us that Jesus has gone for a walk. He's gone to a walk around the Sea of Galilee. We don't really know which part of the sea he's walking at, but he's there. And he's going on this walk with a purpose. This is not an aimless walk. He's going there because he has some fishermen in his mind that he wants to talk to. Look at verse 16. Mark passing, uh, says this, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, this is verse 16. He, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. We are told here that Peter and his brother Andrew are on the shore casting their nets into the shallows. Now, you need to make this point really to note this point carefully because you see, the word for casting here is actually a technical word. And it is a word that only fishermen would do. It's it's a sort of detail that you wouldn't see that just by reading the scriptures. Uh, It's a technical word. And this word is actually reminding us that it's not a normal word we would use, but it's a technical word that only a fisherman perhaps would know. And that's quite important as we read Mark, because it reminds us again what we said at the beginning, that Mark is writing this from Rome with the benefit of Peter, And Peter the fisherman, of course, is coming through as we read Mark. That word for casting, just another reminder that Peter, Peter, this is as much Peter's gospel as it is Mark's gospel. Now we should note one thing, the other thing as well, is that this is not the first time Jesus has met Peter and Andrew. If you know your Bibles very well, you know that the Apostle John tells us that they've already met John 1, verse 42, verse 42 tells us that. We know that Andrew is already a follower of who? John the Baptist. And has already brought his brother Simon to meet Jesus. But this meeting is different. It's for a different purpose. It's initiated by Jesus. He's the one going to the shore to seek them out. 
Jesus has come to call them to follow him. Look at, let's look at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, to Simon and Andrew, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. This is one of the most cardinal verses, perhaps, in all of Mark. And we must pause here to consider it because it has huge implications for all of us. Let us first note here that this is not an invitation. When Jesus said, follow me, when Jesus says, follow me, he's not inviting them. Some people say that. He's not inviting them here, it's obvious. Jesus is giving them a command, a call. Follow me. This is King Jesus who we met in verse 14 to 15. The king has come and is issuing an authoritative command. Follow me. They have a choice. They can either obey or they can disobey the king. Secondly, notice that Jesus is not calling them to follow some ideas or some principles, or a church here, or perhaps a group of people there. He says what? Follow me. Jesus is summoning them. The king is summoning them to himself. Not to the pastor, not to the church, not to a country, but to him. We should pause there and think about this carefully. Because Jesus to command another human being reminds us that Jesus is claiming full authority over their lives. He's saying, you were created to live for me. He's saying, your life now must be about me. Now, if I came down and said that to Brother Rob, you just look at me and uh, you know, tell me to mind my own business, I hope. Politely, of course. And you would expect that, wouldn't you? But Jesus is not like me. He's not like, he's not like anybody. Jesus is God. And he's claiming full authority. He can say this because he is God. And this matters. Think about it. If someone, sometimes we, we get some funny calls over the, our telephones, don't we? If, if someone called you on the phone and said, look, you have committed a crime somewhere, and call us back so that we can deal with it. You don't take them seriously, would you? From a phone, especially if it's coming over the phone. I mean, who does that? That's the way you'd be thinking. But also you'd be saying, well, if it's coming from a foreign country with a strange accent, you'd be thinking, hmm, this doesn't sound quite right. But if the call comes from Bexley Heath Police Station, you know, this is DC something, mentions the name, and say, come, we must speak with you now at Bexley Heath Police Station, or do you want us to come over there? Of course, you quickly pack your bags, or if you know you've done something bad, you quickly head to the airport, I guess, but they'll probably catch up with you. The point is that this call has come from an authoritative figure, and you must respond to it. And so when the disciples now engage Jesus here, Jesus is calling these men, he's calling them to himself. This call is a serious call because of who he's calling them. This is Jesus, the high king of heaven. He's issuing the call to follow him. Let us also make clear that this call to follow Jesus does not end here on the shores of Galilee. Jesus is issuing the call to you this evening. Follow me. 
Are you answering the call? I notice I didn't say, did you at one point in your life answer the call? The call of Jesus is always in the present tense. Are you answering the call to follow Jesus? Jesus is not saying, follow my ideas, as I said, or follow this church. I'm not saying, are you answering the call to follow any church or any pastor? Are you answering the call to follow him? I'm not saying, are you answering the call to follow biblical doctrine or, or a famous author? Have you answered the call? Are you answering the call to follow him, Jesus? And that's our first point, isn't it? Jesus is calling us to follow him. But immediately that raises question. What does it mean to follow him? How do I know I am answering the call? Important questions, aren't they? Well, that brings us to the second truth we learn in this passage. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, the second truth is that following Jesus means denying ourselves. It means denying ourselves. Let's, let's go on. You see that Jesus has issued a call to Simon and Andrew. What does Simon and Andrew do? What do they do? Well, Mark tells us the brothers immediately answer the call. Look at verse 18. And in classic Mark wording, immediately they left their nets and followed him. We'll come to that point of immediately later. Mark is communicating the immediate willingness for them to do it right away. They are not checking their mobiles. They are not checking their diaries. They know what this is about. The king has called them and they answer the call. And immediately, verse 18, they left their nets and followed him. What the brothers are doing here is that they are turning back on their old lives in order to live a new life with Jesus. They are saying, look, Jesus is now our life. We want him. We want to follow him. And there's a wonderful continuity between what we learned this morning about Jesus, Jesus commanding us to repent and trust in the good news with what's happening here. Because we see that what the disciples have done here is, a, is an illustration of verse 15. They have taken a 180 degree turn. They have been going in the me direction. Now they are going in the Jesus direction. They are now following Jesus. This is a radical choice. It is a radical choice they have made. And it involves denying themselves in a way that costs them. Friends, don't miss what's happening in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. And immediately they did what? They left their nets and followed him. The first thing we note here, Mark wants us to remember, is that for, for Simon and Andrew, following Jesus means losing their jobs. Losing their jobs. They've lost their jobs now. They are leaving their jobs behind to follow Jesus. It has cost them their jobs. And Jesus is not finished. Let's, let's resume the journey with him. Jesus is not finished calling people to deny themselves. Mark tells us that Jesus keeps walking. Now there are three of them. Off they go along the lake. Jesus has got more fishing to do for men. Uh, off he goes. Look at verse 19. And going on a little further... He saw James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. So James and John now, Jesus has come to these two brothers, James and John, they are with Zebedee there, dad, uh, they are in the boat mending their nets, putting them in good order. And Jesus immediately, when he sees them, he doesn't waste any time. He issues the same command to follow him. Look at verse 28. And immediately he called them. We assume the call is the same. Follow me, in verse 17, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And so in verse 20, we see that they obey. James and John, the sons of thunder, the children of Salome, the father being Zebedee, they leave their dad, we are told in verse 20. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Notice the words there carefully. Did you notice something interesting in verse 20? And they left their father Zebedee. There's no mention here of them leaving their nets in this instance, which they have done. Mark points out a key point. And they left, who do they leave? Their father Zebedee in the boat. Mark wants to draw attention to a very important point. For, for, for Andrew and Peter or Simon, the issue for them was that they left their jobs. That is the cost they paid. But these brothers, James and John, are so close perhaps to their dad, Mark flags up the key point. What has cost them now is a family relationship. They have left the company of their father. And it's very interesting as we read the Gospels, that we don't hear from Zebedee again. We hear from Salome, his wife, who becomes a follower of Jesus. That's another sermon. But, but we hear something about, we don't, never hear about Zebedee himself. Perhaps the relationship became fractured after this. Perhaps the cost was too great. Or perhaps he too became a follower of Jesus. We don't know. But what Mark is trying to tell us here is that he's trying to capture something stunning, something shocking to us. He's saying to us that what it, what it means to truly follow Jesus means forsaking everyone and everything else for him. It is forsaking everyone and everything for him. Now, when I say forsake, I don't mean abandoning your work. It means you go quit your job. That may involve that, perhaps. I can think of people who become, I know many people that became followers of Jesus, and they found that their jobs was inconsistent with their work with Christ. And they stopped. We all have heard, I'm sure, stories of that. And we can think of job occupations where that would eat them immediately. Or work situation where that would hit them immediately. But I'm not saying that, per se, that Jesus is saying, abandon your work or your family, for me, of course. That contravenes other commandments that Jesus gives. Rather, what Jesus, what Mark is trying to draw attention to here is that following Jesus now defines how you do your family. It now defines how you do your work. Jesus is now truly Lord over your work and your family. And there may, be in, there may be time in which even your family bears the cost. That's why it's important to understand that that is what it means to follow Jesus. Here is how Jesus puts it in Luke 9, verse 25 to verse 27. You need to read this because it's a very important passage. 
Jesus' own words in Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, I will read to verse 27. So on page 867, Jesus says this, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his Father's glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That is essentially what Christ will uh, makes the point there. The idea is that we are to take up the cross and follow him, to deny ourselves daily. And this is the point that Mark is getting across here through by recording these words of Jesus for us. Now, women try to rationalize what Jesus said. In fact, in other parts of the scripture, Jesus Christ even talks about the fact that you can't follow me unless you hate your brother or your sister or your father. He makes that point in Luke somewhere. And sometimes we rationalize that. But throughout those scriptures, what is making it very clear is that look, our love for Jesus is this. Our love for Jesus is we're truly his followers. When, they are, when it's compared to the love I have for my daughter or my wife, it should almost look like my love for my wife, my daughter, is hatred compared to my love for Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. We should love Jesus and follow him such a way that there's no comparison to anything around us. It is truly denying ourselves and giving ourselves 100% to Christ. Following Jesus is unconditional. Essentially what Jesus is doing here is doing this. He's putting a blank contract in front of these men. He's putting a blank contract in front of you. And the contract is blank, right? And he's asking you to sign it. To sign it off. He says, sign at the bottom. And then he asks, how fill in the details afterwards? Because it's a blank contract for him. Coming to Jesus, you sign a blank contract. And he does with you whatsoever he pleases. No ifs or buts, you are now following him. As I thought about this and my own life, I thought this is a difficult teaching for many of us. This is why the crowds could not stomach it in John. They stopped following him. They were used they stopped following him. And the tragedy is that many of us really would follow the crowd, wouldn't we? But the thing is, we have not realized that's what it means to be a Christian. Many people haven't taught us these truths. They are here in the scriptures that they've not been open to us. Because they are such difficult truths. And so many of us have a wrong idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus is calling you to do. To deny yourself and follow him. And so the question you have to ask yourself this evening is, are you answering this call to deny yourself? 
Are you living as a true follower of Jesus? Here then is the definition of a Christian who dies to himself to follow Christ. We must ask this question of ourselves. We must ask this question of the church. What sort of members do we have? What are we preaching? Is it the gospel here? Or is it the gospel in our hands? Can we look, as we look at our membership, say to ourselves, these are people who have denied themselves, taken up the cross, and followed him. As you share the gospel with others, uh, on the Broadway, as the ladies were doing this afternoon, the question might be asked, what gospel are we presenting? Is it self-denial, or is it adding on Christ to other things? These are very important questions. We must ask them. Because you see, these four men in front of us are the first Christians. They are the first Christians. Now, technically, I like to say John the Baptist was the first Christian because he pointed people to Jesus. He believed it. But aside from John, these four are the first Christians in gospel history. And their response to Jesus tells us that entering the kingdom of God in verse 14, 15 is not a matter of Chola's definition or, or Brother Andrew's definition or Brother Rob's definition or Brother Kwaku's definition. Entering the kingdom of God is what Jesus is doing here. It, it, it is calling them and them surrendering to themselves to follow him. It is telling us it's literally becoming a slave of Jesus. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Following Jesus is taking on the crucified life of Jesus. Following Jesus means that the world no longer revolves around you. It is total surrender, blank check. We are writing a blank check to Jesus. Oh, as I say, blank contract. We are writing a blank contract to Jesus. He's writing one to us. And he's now filling in the detail. Every detail of our lives is under his lordship. Jesus is saying to all of us this evening, follow me. Have you answered the call? Are you answering the call to deny yourself? Now, this does not mean we are perfect. No, remember, I, do, I don't know about you, but you read this, 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 this narrative here, immediately dawns on you. Simon, the first Christian, denies Jesus later in Mark. We realize that these, all of these four men, they will face that crisis moment when they will flee from Christ and abandon him. Immediately, that, that, that fills you with hope, doesn't it? It, it filled me with hope because I realize that in my walk with Christ, sometimes I'll stumble as Peter does. So we're not talking about perfect people here. We're talking about people who Christ makes perfect in him. They will always be stumbling on the way. But these men, even as they're going to stumble three years from now, perhaps, even as their knowledge of Jesus is going to improve along the way and sometimes they'll make mistakes about him, their direction of their lives has changed. Hasn't it? They were going in the me direction. They are now going in the Jesus direction. And every day we see in Mark, as he progresses on and reaches that crescendo, they'll become more and more like him. Their knowledge of Christ is going to grow, 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 to the point that in Mark 8, Peter will make that ultimate confession. So it is the direction of our life we're talking about, not perfection. So ask yourself this question. In light of that, are you answering the call? 
Is your love for Jesus growing over everything? Can you see a progression there? You are being moved from one degree of growth to the next because you become every day like Jesus. Your love for Jesus is growing deeper and deeper every day. Every day you are learning to deny yourself in areas that you never even considered. You have to ask yourself that question. I have to ask myself that question. And as a church, we have to ask ourselves that question. Is this church every day growing in denying itself as a church? Can we look back from the 195 years of our history since 1823 to where we are now? What has been the trajectory of the church? Are we more alive now than we've ever been? Difficult questions, aren't they? Are we laying a foundation now for the church that could last for 200 years at a better position if Christ tarries? Or are we laying a weak foundation that the next man could easily destroy? A weak membership. A sin-loving membership. We must ask ourselves that question. Because the call of the pastor is to lay a strong foundation. And that's the call of the leaders. To lay no other foundation other than the foundation of Christ himself. Follow me. So we must ask ourselves that. Is it true in your life that you're following Christ? If the answer is no, then you must stop here. Because if you ask yourself, you don't see that progression, you must stop here. Because you may not yet be a follower of Jesus. You may not yet be genuinely converted. We must never be afraid to make that point, even in a crowd such as this, of men and women who have braved the heat outside against to come here. Because all of us need to be reminded of these truths. Why? Because I've read the story of John Wesley. John Wesley was one of the influential Christian preachers of the 18th century. He grew up in a Christian home from, and by all accounts, John Wesley looked very much like a wonderful Christian. You know what? John Wesley was an Oxford graduate, an ordained pastor in the Church of England. He did a lot of great work, actually, visiting the prisoners and, and, and even sharing Christ with them. Uh, he generously gave food to children living in the slums and many orphans. John Wesley was an avid Bible student. He prayed regularly, and he even fasted sometimes for 40 days at a time. Non-stop, keep going on. He even attended multiple church services of worship of the Sunday. And I know it's difficult coming in the morning and evening was for, for, for us. John Wesley would do more than that on a Sunday, typically in those days. And midweek there will be sermons being preached and sometimes you even lead them and attend. John, even more than that, he went to the British colony of Georgia. As a, native, as, a, as a missionary to the Native Americans there. This is John's record. A missionary. A towering figure in many ways. And yet when Wesley came back from Georgia, he confessed in his journal that he was not a Christian. He writes in his journal, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. You're wondering. I hope you are. 
How can Wesley do all these things and yet not be a follower of Jesus? Well, you'd have to read Wesley's journals. Because it continues. Listen closely to what John Wesley writes next in his journal. I had even then a faith, the faith of a servant, but though not that of a son. John Wesley is saying, despite everything that John was doing, he had no personal relationship with God as his father. He didn't know him in Christ. He hadn't reached that point where he had answered the call to deny himself. There had been no transformation in his life, only religion. John looked to the externals, but now he realized that no, he was not converted. John Wesley. What about you this evening, brothers and sisters? Have you answered the call? Stories like John Wesley shock us, don't they? They raise doubts. But that's why we have the living word of God to tell us what a true Christian is. Because Jesus here is saying, those who he calls must die to themselves. And this morning we learned that those Jesus comes preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins and, 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 and then he's preaching that we must trust in him. And we made the point that those who truly trust in Christ have new affections, new love for Christ. There's a radical change from the me direction to the Jesus direction. They're living for Christ. And they love to live for Christ. They are longing every day to see their saved. You know, some of the things that love Christ, I sit there thinking, I want to see Jesus. I long to know him more and more. Is this you? Is this you? Is there that desire to know Christ more? Yes, you stumble often in sin. But is Jesus your everything? Are you growing to know him more? Or is it just religion like John Wesley? Do you see why we need sermons such as this? We need them because we have examples from church history. We need them because they are here. We need them because we don't want to be deceived ourselves. We want to know that our faith is real. Our faith will be tested by fire on that great day. And it will survive. If it... You must ask yourself that question. Do I have a new desire to follow? Do I have a deeper growing desire to follow Christ? Am I living for Jesus? You must ask yourself, is this me? If it is not, then this evening come quietly before Jesus. It was never too late for John Wesley. Yeah, it's not too late for us. You don't look to people around you. You just come to Christ, trust him, and trust him alone. You surrender your life completely to him, and you ask him to change you. So we've seen in this passage that Jesus is doing two things. First of all, he's calling us to follow him, and then we realize again, what is Jesus actually calling us to do? Well, calling us to follow him means denying ourselves. This, of course, raises a... Obvious question, isn't it? Why is Jesus calling us to follow him? Why? Yes, it's by grace, but what is the direction? What is the purpose of all of this? Well, it's us to the final truth. Jesus is calling us to reproduce. Followers of Jesus are called to 
reproduce, to make fishes of man. Let's look at verse 17. We're given a reason there. Jesus says, He's calling us to follow in order to fish for people. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll do what? I will make you become fishers of men. Now, when we see that phrase, fishers of men, and the way we've heard it explained sometimes, we think Jesus is making a play on words. We think this is just a clever pitch, they're fishing, and they're saying, Now, change of job description, you'll be fishing for men. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing here. This is a serious call to become part of serious gospel work. And we know that because the phrase, fishes of men, actually comes from the Old Testament. Uh, in Jeremiah 16, verse 16, these words actually speak of judgment. But when it comes to the New Testament, that image of judgment changes drastically. Because you see, Jesus walks through the pages of the New Testament all the way to the cross and takes on the judgment for himself. You and I now are freed from that judgment if we trust in Christ. So in the Old Testament, being fishes of men is a picture of fishing people for judgment. In Christ, Christ has now, if so to speak, taken on the judgment for himself. What I'm saying here is that when Christ calls his men to to become fishes of men, he's calling them to, if you like, catch people in order to save them from the coming judgment. When I think of this phrase, I'm thinking the gospel work is the greatest humanitarian project of all time. You think of NGOs going abroad doing other things. That's nothing compared to the gospel. The gospel is there to save sinners from the fiery hell that is there under. And then Jesus here is saying, look, you know, the followers of Jesus must now, if you like, castanet gospel speaking to ensure that the fish are caught so that they don't go to destruction. And Jesus here is calling us really to join hands with him in saving souls, friends. Save souls. That's the mission he's calling you to. But notice it's not simply sharing the gospel. We must understand this phrase. Let's look at it, verse 17 again. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. The fishing for men is not simply saying, accept Christ as your personal savior. It is a call for us to do, to bring people under us, to share Christ with them in the way in which we are following Christ. It is a call to disciple making. We are to fish for people, and they in turn become people who fish for people to follow Jesus. And they in turn become people who fish for people to follow Jesus. It is a call not only to share Christ with people, but to teach them, to instruct them in the things of God, so that they can in turn fish for people. It is disciple-making, but plying. The, The cycle just goes on and on. And that's why Christ is calling us to do did you notice a very important word in verse 17? It's missed out in some version. Let's read that again. Follow me, and I'll do what? I will make you do what? Become fishers of men. 
Notice that phrase, I'll make you become. Jesus is saying, it is him who causes us to become fishes of men. It is not DIY. Fishing for men is not DIY. It is Jesus who causes it. But there's a bigger point Jesus is making here. He's saying, now that you are following me, I will transform you to become men and women who desire to make other disciples. To put it bluntly, what Jesus is saying here is that if you are a true follower of Jesus, you will have an inner supernatural compulsion to make disciples of Jesus. You don't need anyone to tell you. You you don't need instruction. You don't have to be cajoled. Jesus himself who has saved you and transformed your heart will give you a desire to reach other people for Jesus. Hold that thought for a minute. It's very important. Because you see, when it comes to fishing for people, all of us are at different stages. For some of us, fishing for people is like going on a date. Right? It's like going on a date. You are wondering, trying to decide whether this fishing for men is for you. It's like you're going on a day, you're wondering, is, have I really been called to share Christ, to disciple others? Perhaps it's not for me, perhaps it's for the pastors, it's perhaps for the leaders. You, you are thinking. Well, the message here is that those who are true followers of Jesus make disciples of others. As I've said, true followers of Jesus do not need to be cajoled, they don't need to be persuaded, they don't even need to be manipulated, they don't need to be made feel guilty into making disciples of Jesus. It comes as a natural product, rather, as a supernatural product of who they are in Christ. It flows from following Christ. And that raises a very difficult question, doesn't it? If we are not fishing for people, if we have no desire to to save the lost, then are we really following Jesus? I have to ask myself this question because my eternal destiny is at stake. I look at John Wesley, I'm wondering. He's got one over better. Why Johnny Wesley is doing that? Surely, surely. Before he's converted, surely it means, it means, friends, that those who know Christ have that supernatural desire to share Christ even more than John Wesley who doesn't. If we are alive, we'll seek the lost for Christ. It's that simple. So for some of us, it's like going on a date. For some of us, fishing for people, it's like going into a BP garage. Uh, you only drop into the garage when you need to, right? Tomorrow we're going to pool, so I'll be going to the BP garage <laughs> to put in some gas. This week the gas has been low, so I don't need to go to the garage. Because I don't need to. And for some of us, sharing Christ, making disciples, is like that. We are trying to do the minimum. We recognize it's important. We know that. We've read the scriptures. We recognize it's important. And there is a sense in which there's a desire there, actually. A little desire. But we see that it's not actually integrated in our lives. We are trying to fit making disciples into our lives. It's almost like trying to fit a square into a round hole. It is only something we try and do under extreme pressure or when we feel guilty. Perhaps after a sermon like this, when we think, well, Christ is calling us to make disciples. And we go home and think, oh dear, i got to do something. And we feel guilty and we start doing it. When we feel we must. 
But beloved, let us look at these disciples of Christ. Look at them again. Read this passage, perhaps even when you get home. And they are getting fully on board with Tim Jesus. And they are now fishing for people. It is who they are, because Jesus says in verse 17, Follow me and I'll make you fishes of men. And when the Spirit of God comes on Pentecost, and by the way, even before the Spirit of God comes on Pentecost, we'll meet these men as Jesus sends them out. Notice their excitement at sharing Christ with others and they'll re- report great things that are happening. And at Pentecost, notice you when you read it, when the Spirit of God comes on Pentecost, they, these men are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They go out there and share Christ. Persecution comes. And you read there, perhaps, I think it's Acts 4, where, where they are persecuted a bit, and then they come and say, oh, they rejoiced to be counted worthy of suffering for Christ. Where does that joy come from? Of suffering for Christ, rejoicing. It comes from the fact that these men have, Christ is, inter- they have integrated themselves in the life of Christ. They are not trying to fit, if you like, as I said, a square into a round hole. And Jesus is asking you this evening to examine your life. What is success in your Christian life looking like from his vantage point? Are you answering the call? Jesus is calling on all of us to answer the call here. To make disciples who follow him. To follow him so we make disciples who follow Christ and the Psycho goes on. And they have responded, these men, to that. And they have done it, what? Willingly, isn't it? If you're going to summarize, you know, I sat back and thought, if I could summarize these men, their response, one word come to mind. Willingly. We see it there in verse 18. And immediately they left their nets. We see it in verse 20. And immediately he called them, they go on, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. They are willing they are not doing, following Jesus kicking and screaming. They are following Jesus willingly. And we must follow Jesus willingly. Now, as I come to an end, I notice, I think, I realize that to some this might sound like wishful thinking. This is all wishful thinking. I mean, how can we, anyone be expected at all to surrender their lives to Jesus in this way? A part of me says, well, ask the Lord. <laughs> I'm just telling you what he's doing. But a part of me realizes, actually, I do have an answer to that. Because you see, friends, what may sound like wishful thinking to some, surrendering to Jesus, death to self, fishing for people, is not wishful thinking if you're truly converted. If you're truly converted, you know who is calling you to deny yourself. You know this is a command from the high king of heaven. And immediately it dawns on you that this call to follow him is not wondrous at all. It is an amazing privilege. The Lord Almighty, by his grace, chosen me from eternity past, called me from a fallen race of men to be his child. He's not only willing to save me from hell, he's saying, Chola, come partner with me on this. Ephesians 2 verse 10. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's a gift from God that anyone should boast. For we are God's workmanship in Christ. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works which God prepared 
before and so that we should walk in them. Immediately strikes me. This is Jesus. An amazing privilege to do this for him. What looked like so wondrous, I realized sharing Christ by the Broadway is a privilege. I realized that sacrificing everything I have is a privilege. Giving up my bank accounts, everything to Christ is a privilege. Sacrificing all my time is a privilege. But it's more than that, isn't it? Jesus to me is more than just my king. Jesus to me is my Messiah and Savior. Because you see, as I think of Jesus, I realize that the Lord Jesus has willingly, willingly given all of himself up on the cross for me. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 to 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As I read that scripture, I see something amazing. I realize Jesus is not calling me to do something that he has not already done for me. Do you see that? Jesus said, lay down your life for me. Leave everything, follow me. But I see on the cross something totally different. On the cross I see a savior. I see a savior who has given all of himself up for me. Jesus, friends, never calls us to do things that he himself hasn't done. And then I realize, not only is he so great, him who's calling me, I realize not only is it such a privilege, I realize all I have in Christ, all I have in this world, all my faith, everything I have belongs to him already. I am not really giving him anything more that already belongs to him. I realize that living for Jesus, friends, is not a loss. Oh, it's not a loss. Our God is not a data. We are exchanging our lives for something more precious. He gives us all of himself, welcomes us in his heavenly kingdom. Joy without end. And I think I should end there for the evening. With a question, isn't it? For all of us, as we think of Christ, as we think of this passage, as you have patient, listen. The question is, are you answering the call? Are you answering the call? Amen.